0: Well, last week we began just looking at the spiritual significance of water baptism. Kind of felt like it was time to set that again. We hadn't talked about it in probably three or four years. And so we started last week on this topic, and I want to finish that up tonight. Turn with me once again to Matthew 28. Matthew 28, the very end of the Gospel, and we'll begin our time with the command of Christ concerning baptism. Matthew twenty-eight eighteen through 20 And Jesus came up and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to keep all that I commanded you, and behold, I am with you even to the end of the age. Well, let's pray for a moment and ask the Lord's blessing on our time together. Thank you, Lord, for this word, this uh, climactic portion of the Gospel of Matthew, which ends appropriately with the words of our Savior, the words of the head of the church, the one to whom all authority has been given. And we see that he has given the basic plan of the growth of the Gospel, the basic plan of the church That we are to make disciples and we are to baptize them into the church. And we ask you, Lord, to help us to do that final admonition. And that is to keep the commands of Christ. And that's what we would long for tonight. And we ask you, Lord, to sanctify us through this time in your word. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. So last week, I I gave you a simple definition. I'll give it to you again. It's not really that simple. It's as short as I could make it. But here's our simple definition, and I'll repeat it a couple of times. That baptism is a post salvation act of faith and public testimony. Baptism is a post salvation act of faith and public testimony that you have been united with Christ in his death and resurrection. That you have been united with Christ in his death and resurrection and intend to follow and obey Him. And intend to follow and obey Him. Now, I don't know if you caught this from our definition, baptism is a post-salvation act of faith, and public testimony that you've been united with Christ in His death and resurrection, and intend to follow and obey Him. That definition is simply taken from Matthew twenty-eight, eighteen through 20 That follows that exact uh, sequence of events. Now, last week, we did two out of five topics I'm adding one topic tonight. So last week we did the basics of baptism, and then we looked at the participants in baptism when we spent a significant amount of time making the case for believer's baptism, credo baptism, those who are able to, to uh, give a statement of their faith versus infant baptism. And so we would say that the participants in baptism are believers who have made a profession of faith who are in Christ already. Tonight, to finish this topic up, I want to look at three more topics, and then I added one extra uh, by special request, and it was interesting enough to me to go ahead and add it in. I want to look at the method or the mode of baptism. How do we do it? I want to look at the purpose of baptism. There's really several purposes. That's the why do we do it. And then two special topics. The first one, children and baptism. How do we deal with that? And then I'm adding one other special topic, baptism for the dead. Now, just when I say that, you're going to say, I'd rather hear that first, but we'll save that for the end. See if you can focus between now and then. Uh, Just to give you a quick hint, we don't do it. So I just wanted you to know that. So let's go with our, our third topic here, the method of baptism. There's two parts to the method of baptism. It is by immersion and it is in public. It's by immersion and it's in public. And so that's the easy part. Let's go into it in a little more detail. The first part of the method of baptism, by immersion. This is sometimes called the mode of baptism. The Greek word translated baptize, baptizo, simply means to immerse or to dip. And it's it's a full-orbed word. It doesn't mean to squirt. It doesn't mean to dab. It means to immerse. And as I mentioned last time, this word can have non-water uses. Uses that don't have to do with water. For example, John the Baptist said in Matthew 3.11 that those who will believe on the Lord Jesus Christ will be baptized with the Holy Spirit, immersed in and identified with the Spirit of God. And he said that those who do not believe on the Lord Jesus Christ will be baptized with fire, immersed in and identified with the judgment of God. So it has to be immersion. It has to be complete. It has to be total. The word baptized doesn't allow for any other meaning. In 1813, David Benedict wrote a book about the history of the Baptist church. And he wrote about the mode or the method of baptism in history. And he said this. Baptism, as it was instituted by the great Christian lawgiver, was a plain and significant rite. But in process of time, baptism passed from visible believers to catechized minors and from them to unconscious babies. And now immersion, from immersion, it was reduced to pouring, then to sprinkling, and now to any mode which inventive fancies of capricious candidates may devise, provided always that some part of them get wet. Translation, we don't get to make up how we baptize interesting to me to look at the history of the early church when persecution by rome drove christians literally in the city of rome to literally worship underground in the catacombs secret baptistries were constructed in the catacombs under rome the remains of those baptistries are some of the oldest archaeological witnesses to how christian baptism was performed one historian writes about it quote one such baptistry in the catacomb of san Panziano is four and a half feet long, three and a half feet wide, and three and a half feet deep. A channel diverted water from a nearby stream to fill this fountain, and it was in use from the first to the fourth century, a baptistry that they used for 300 years. And how big was it? It It's about that size, except without the steps and all the fancy things that we've added. So it is by immersion. Second part of the method, it is in public. It is in public. Listen very carefully. We have a personal faith. We do not have a private faith. Our faith is not private. Anyone who says, my faith in God is really just between me and Him, translation, I'm not actually a Christian. Because no one who claims Christ keeps it private. We don't have a private faith. We have a faith that that is lived out together, lived out in a body. For example, if someone says, well, I just decided to baptize myself in my bathtub. He didn't get baptized, he just took a bath in a state of contemplation. That's all he did. Baptism is always a public profession with other believers witnessing this profession. That's always the case. And We would say that if someone says, I'm too embarrassed to get dunked underwater in front of a bunch of people, then we would say you're too embarrassed to follow Christ. I get to give this little speech to all of our baptism candidates And I I let them know because there is an element of nervousness and we understand that. But I let them know that everybody seated out here is on their side and half of them have been in this baptistry here. Well, not this one, but in the one we used to use. If I'm too embarrassed to get a little bit wet for the sake of Christ, I'm not going to withstand persecution. I'm not going to stand for the faith. Now, I can't speak for all of you. I know some of you and I can speak for myself as being raised in church environments that either didn't understand Christian baptism or just didn't take it seriously, didn't worry about it, and went with church tradition instead. And I know for many of us that's caused a great deal of angst and maybe even a little bit of frustration at being misled. Whatever stage you're in, now you know. The baptism, the method, is by immersion and it is in public. I don't know the exact statistic, but I'm going to say for me personally as a pastor, I'm going to say at least 8 out of the 10 people that I baptize have been, quote unquote, baptized before. Now I tell them, you haven't been baptized before. What I mean by that is that they, they weren't saved or they were sprinkled as a baby. And we don't count that as baptism. What we say is that you got wet in a religious environment, that that's all that is that's the result of bad teaching that's the result of a a low view of the gospel a high view of self and so we do our best to try to correct that as we go so the method or the mode by immersion and in public but i want to get to the heart of the issue i want to talk about now the purpose of baptism the purpose of baptism and we'll divide this into four reasons you really only need one but we'll do four Reason number one under the purpose of baptism, this is the only one you have to have, it's a command of Christ. It is a Christ command and that's all you need. We just read this in Matthew 28, 18 through 20. He was not ambiguous at all. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Believers in Christ are Baptized. If you don't want to follow that first command of Christ, why would the church have any reason to believe you're going to follow the other commands of Christ? It's a litmus test, as it were, not to see if you are saved, but to just show that you're, you're obedient. Jesus said, if you love him, you obey his commandments. John fourteen fifteen. And this is, this is a, the, the easy one. He commanded baptism. He commanded a, a public profession of faith. It's a command of Christ. There's a second reason under the purpose of baptism. I've already alluded to this, but I want to flesh it out a little bit more. Baptism publicly identifies you as a follower of Christ. It publicly identifies you as a follower of Christ. Now, I've divided this into five representative meanings of baptism to show you that you are a follower of Christ, or rather to show others that you're a follower of Christ. Here are these five representative meanings. The first, meanings. The first one we'll call Association. Association says that Jesus, uh, as Jesus commanded His disciples here in Matthew 28, to baptize new disciples in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. It's a public statement of belief in the triune God and a desire to associate with Him. I belong to Him. I belong to God the Father. I belong to God the Son. I belong to God the Spirit. So there's association Identifying yourself as a follower of Christ, we would also use the term, I just used it identification. Identification. Last week I referenced Romans 6, 3 through 5. We're buried with him, we're raised with him. The Apostle Paul illustrates this by referring to the believer as being in Christ. In Christ, in Christ. Do you know how many times? 85 times. We're in him. Baptism is a monumental statement that we are in Christ where we are immersed into him. So there's association, there's identification, another representative meaning we'll call purification. Purification, baptism is not a means of purification, but it is a representative act of the cleansing of sin as part of the new covenant. And this will be well represented by Titus 3 verse 5, that he saved us Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal by the Holy Spirit. That a person enters into the waters of baptism and is completely submerged in the water. And what does this represent? It represents total cleansing from sin. Christ has given that cleansing and it's necessary to enter into the new covenant. And this is, this is very key. This ties into the Old Testament idea that you didn't just go get renewed by God. You didn't, you didn't go get forgiven by God. First, you had to be cleansed. First, you had to be clean before the Lord. And that was in the Old Testament law. And this is the same thing. That we are purified and forgiven. We are the washing of regeneration. Renewal by the Holy Spirit. There's a fourth representative meaning we could say and that is liberation liberation hebrews ten thirty one says it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living god but baptism symbolizes that now we're liberated the the wrath of god no longer holds us in terror and in fear and there, there's a joy to that there's a there's a delight to that uh one of our pastors who may or may not be the tallest guy most of us know He loves to baptize and you've seen him. He rips people out of the water, right? Because it's a celebration. And if I was capable of doing that and I was taller, I would do it. But it's liberation. You know what I get to see? And baptism doesn't save, but it is representative. You know what I get to see? I get to be this close to the faces of people coming up out of the water. And every time it's just pure, unadulterated joy and delight. There's one more representative meaning to public baptism. It is incorporation. Incorporation. 1 Corinthians 12.13 states that in one spirit we have all been baptized, immersed in one body, and made to drink of one spirit. Now this is primarily speaking of the work of the Holy Spirit in officially incorporating us into the body of Christ. But water baptism certainly represents that. It's a public statement of incorporation into membership with the church of Jesus Christ. We don't run a drive-through baptism service here. You can't call Grace Bible Church and just say, "Uh, I I don't know anything about you guys, but I'd like to be baptized on Sunday. And and we don't say, okay, that'll be 1995, bring your own towel. We don't run a baptism service. You're being incorporated into the body of Christ. Here's a third reason under the purpose. Baptism is evidence of commitment to Christ. Baptism is evidence of commitment to Christ. Now, I was trying to be very clear about this. I didn't say baptism is proof of commitment to Christ. It's evidence. We don't have proof. Proof has to be between you and the Lord. But it is evidence to those in the church that commitment to Christ is genuine, that it's real. Baptism is probably the simplest thing Christ will ever ask you to do. Uh, when, When we have people who are hesitant to be baptized and they don't want to obey the Lord? You know, it's really a simple question. Okay, so you don't want to obey the Lord by putting on a swimsuit and a t-shirt and getting wet in front of people. Do you want to obey the Lord when the Bible says husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church? Do you want to obey the Lord when He talks about humbling yourself under the mighty hand of God? Do you want to obey the Lord in having a, a wonderfully humble attitude in the midst of suffering? Because I don't think if you want, don't want to obey the Lord in the simplest of tasks that you're going to succeed in obeying Him in the more difficult things. 1 John 2.4, the Apostle John says, Whoever says, I know Him, but does not keep His commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. Somebody says, I know Christ, I just don't want to be baptized. Then you don't know Christ. It's that simple. Well, you don't know my heart. You're right, I don't. But I do know your behavior. And your behavior says that you don't know Christ. Acts 238. Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the salvation, the forgiveness of your sins, rather, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Now, this isn't a proof text for baptismal regeneration. This is people publicly saying they wanted to follow Christ. And I, I want to be really clear about this. This statement by Peter, repent and be baptized, was made in response to a question. Now you recall his sermon in Acts chapter 2 was so powerful, so cutting to the heart that the men of Jerusalem who were listening, several thousand of them, they 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 stopped Peter and they said, What do we do? Because he had convicted them. He told them, You crucified Christ, and his sin is on his uh his Uh, death is on you and your sin and they were panicked and i've never had that happen where a whole congregation says what do we do about this but peter did first sermon that's kind of a big deal out of the gate he didn't say repent join the church go to a membership class go to a baptism class pray about it he said repent and be baptized now here's the big deal the big deal is The environment in which he said, repent and be baptized is significant. Less than two months earlier, the men who found their headquarters a few blocks away from where this sermon took place had murdered Jesus, the head of the Christian faith. Baptism is public. It says, I follow Christ, that guy you just killed a few weeks ago. So what is he saying? He's saying you repent and you lay your life on the line right now. Peter's essentially asking, do you really want to follow Christ? Are you really repentant? Are you really willing to count the cost? Then make it public, make it official and be baptized as a follower of Christ even if it means the end of your life. And for many of those, it did. Baptism in the early church was to take your life in your own hands. Throughout the Roman Empire, there was a saying that was associated with baptism. Here's the saying, Christ before Caesar. Christ before Caesar. And in some baptism services, that's what people said as they went down into the waters of baptism. Christ before Caesar. And they went down. In the third century, Emperor Decius of Rome, he loathed Christians, but rather than just killing them, He tried to get them to turn away from Christ. Many of them were tortured. They were threatened. Even bribery was attempted in some cases. And Decius commanded that all Roman citizens had to sacrifice to the traditional Roman gods. Not only that, then and only then would they be given an official certificate that they had obeyed this order. If we were talking about it in modern times, we would call that vaccination, for example. One certificate called in Latin, uh, Labellus, was discovered in Egypt. And it says this, quote, The Edict of Decius 250 commanded provincial governors and magistrates, assisted where necessary by local notables, to superintend the sacrifices to the gods and to the genius of the emperor to be, form, be performed by all on a fixed day. What does that mean? It means that as a Christian, to be baptized, also said, I'm not obeying that other order by Caesar. In that environment, a professing Christian who refused to be baptized, the church would say, then you're not real. You're not real, and they wouldn't be given the time of day. In some churches during this time of great persecution, we generally invite people to church, and we hope that they get saved, and then we baptize them in this In this era, it was more like this. You share the gospel with somebody, and if they say, yes, I have come to faith in Christ, and you say, are you willing to be publicly baptized and say Christ before Caesar, then they would invite you to the church because you were real. Such that we had churches that pure today. Here's a fourth reason under the the purpose of baptism. I've alluded to this. I want to get into it just a little bit more. Baptism is directly connected to membership in the local church. It's directly connected to membership in the local church. Acts 2, 41 and 42, right after this sermon where Peter said, repent and be baptized. Well, they were 3,000 of them. Acts 2, 41, so those who received his word were baptized. Did you catch that? Those who received his word were baptized. There's a one-to-one correlation And there were added that day about 3,000 souls. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. I want you to notice several things from this text I just read. First of all, someone took account of how many people were baptized. Someone kept track of who was a member of the new church of Jesus Christ and who was not. That argues for church membership. Second thing I'd have you notice is what did all the baptized people do? They immediately gathered together and submitted to the leadership of the church. At that time, it was the apostles. That was the immediate response. And the third thing I want to show you is that they took the Lord's Supper together, the breaking of the bread, and they only did so as baptized members of the church. The concept of baptizing someone who makes no commitment to join the local assembly of Christians is unknown in the Bible. And by the way, just so you know, and I get asked this on occasion, baptism is a one-time event in the life of a Christian. Legitimate baptism is. We do receive new members who attest that they have been publicly uh, baptized and proclaim their faith in a different context. And we're, we're fine with that. It does, however, have to be a church that proclaims the gospel. You can't say, yeah, I, I went to my uh, local Kiwanis club and they had a big pool and I got baptized there. No, it has to be a church. Well, that's the purpose of baptism. I want to spend the rest of our time on a couple of special topics. Special topic number one, children and baptism. Children and baptism. Now, you might be saying, well, just last week you said we don't baptize babies. That's right. So we have an issue to deal with here. Because we hold to believer's baptism or credo baptism, we rightly have a concern for the baptism of children. The church has been plagued by easy believism. It uses supposed methods that, that bring people to faith, as it were, in Christ. The altar call, extensive pressure and invitations. Uh, the sinner's prayer, which is not found in Scripture anywhere. All kinds of methods just to be able to say, see how many people made a profession of faith. But there, there are several practical reasons for caution when it comes to the baptism of children. I'll give you several reasons for caution. First of all, children are built to follow and taught to obey. Despite the fact that they're little sinners, they are built to follow. They're not emotionally capable of resisting strong social pressure like an altar call or like, how many of you love Jesus? If you love Jesus, raise your hand. What are all the kids going to do? They're all going to raise their hand. There's not a seven-year-old on planet Earth that's going to say, that is a false profession of faith you're trying to squeeze out of me and I refuse to be manipulated. No, oh, they all raise their hand and they get candy afterwards. Okay, I want candy. And this pressure might be coming from their parents without anyone even knowing it. Parents have been giving the gospel to their children, telling them that when they get saved, they can be baptized. Children want to obey their parents, children want to please their parents. Their parents want them to be saved. So a child, out of obedience to parents, desires to be baptized. That's not regeneration, that's not salvation. That's the first reason for caution. There's a second reason for caution. They may not fully understand or be able to articulate the gospel. They may not be able to articulate the gospel, and particularly with small children, discerning whether or not they grasp the gospel can be difficult because they just don't have the vocabulary and the ability to communicate. Another caution. Baptism can cause false assurance of salvation in children can cause false assurance of salvation in children. Children will tend to see baptism as proof that they're saved. You know how I know that? Because I've baptized more adults than I can count who told me I was baptized as a small child and I checked it off my list and thought I was a believer at that point. One other caution, local churches rightly are cautious of an everyone is saved spiritual culture. We don't want to have that culture that everyone is saved. We're concerned that a stampede to the baptistry doesn't represent a revival. It just represents a trend or a a shift in culture. And so there are reasons for caution. But despite those legitimate concerns, we want to be biblically informed. So I'm going to counterpoint that, those reasons with objective truths that we've already considered. Here's an objective truth. Baptism is commanded by Christ Himself. We we already saw that. There's no age delineation given. Just true followers of Christ. We also know that Ephesians 6.1 makes a very good case for believing children. That they're expected to obey in all aspects of the Christian life. They're said to obey your parents in the Lord. You can only be in the Lord if you're in Christ. They're told to obey their parents in the Lord and that's a phrase that Paul speaks of being in Christ. So these are children old enough to understand this command and old enough to obey it. We would also consider the fact that Jesus' attitude toward children was very inclusive, wasn't it? In Matthew 19.14, Jesus said, Let the little children come to me and do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of heaven. Now that's obviously not direct proof for the practice of of baptizing children. But it does help us define a proper attitude toward children, one of love and acceptance. We would also see that the New Testament pattern shows baptism being directly after salvation. We've already established this. we would also see that since baptism is connected strongly to church membership, Any person denied baptism is also being denied the privileges of church membership. So we we find ourselves in the quandary there. And that includes, at least in our church, the ability to serve, the ability to be shepherded. And since baptism is rightly required to take the Lord's table to receive the Lord's Supper, any person denied baptism is also being denied the Lord's table. So we have to be judicious Now, we've already established this, that the New Testament pattern for baptism is that it happens after a reliable profession of faith in Christ. But what makes a profession of faith reliable? How do we know? Well, there's two simple factors that can be used. We'll just call these knowledge and maturity. Knowledge and maturity. First of all, for a person's profession of faith to be reliable he should have at least a rudimentary understanding of the gospel and of the meaning of baptism. That's, that's knowledge. The professing believer, listen carefully, is a participant in baptism, not a recipient of it. Baptism isn't something that is done to you. Baptism is something you participate in. And baptizing someone who doesn't understand why he's being baptized doesn't serve any purpose whatsoever. Again, it's just getting wet in a religious environment. We would also say then. secondly, knowledge, and then second, maturity. The reliable profession of faith includes maturity. What does that mean? It means being able to count the cost. What does it mean to follow Christ? It means you turn away from your sin and you turn toward Christ. There is a cost involved. Not a cost to be saved, to, to get saved. There is a cost to live the life of the saved. And am I willing to count that cost? Jesus gave that command. You count the cost. Children may in fact become believers at an extremely young age. We would say that the gospel is for everyone, not just the mentally cogent. The gospel is for everyone. And we wouldn't invalidate a young childhood conversion just because they're too young to explain it since it's the Holy Spirit who converts. I I think there are children in our church here who have been saved at the age of three. They, they, They can't even go to the bathroom on their own, much less explain the gospel, and yet the Holy Spirit has moved in them. But these children are simply too young to make a reliable profession of faith. It includes knowledge and maturity. And so based on those thoughts, there are good reasons to consider delaying baptism for very young children. And I'll just give you some of these reasons. First of all, since church membership is connected to baptism, in that the full church member is now uh, has all the rights and responsibilities to serve in the church, this connection helps avoid debates about whether someone can be baptized and yet not be a church member. And so any child being baptized should understand that this means applying for church membership with all the responsibilities and privileges. Now at Grace Bible Church, we have taken a little bit of creative liberty and we've created a category we call junior membership. What is that? That's This is for baptized believers who are still under the authority of their parents. Because we would see them as being primarily and first under their parents' authority and secondly under the authority of the church. Here's another reason to delay baptism. Delays give parents and shepherds the opportunity to continue speaking with children about the state of their souls and to hear about their, how their relationship with Christ is, is progressing and how it's budding and coming forth. And this gives further evidence of salvation and gives confidence to everyone that when baptism does occur, it's with the full joy of assurance. You never want to baptize anyone who doesn't understand assurance of salvation. There's a third reason to delay. A delay helps avoid the above issues with uncertain or, or false professions of faith. If you have children, you know that many children go through multiple crises of faith throughout their, their childhood where they doubt or even take back their profession. And so this kind of seesawing back and forth, this is best done before baptism to avoid multiple baptisms. Pastor, you know how you baptized me when I was 12? Uh, yeah, and you remember how when I was 13, I forsook the faith and decided I was a Buddhist. Uh, yeah, you remember how at 14 I repented and you, you, uh, you, you baptized me again. Yeah, and you remember last year how I decided that I hated my parents and that I didn't want anything to do with them and, and you said that's not what Christians do and I said, well, I'm not a Christian. Yeah, um, well, pastor, I, I've decided to follow Christ. Would you baptize me? I don't know. I think I'm gonna wait a little while. That seesawing happens. And it's best for us to see this is a young person who deeply yearns to follow Christ. There's one more reason to delay. A delay helps emphasize the fact that the primary responsibility of children is to obey their parents. Sometimes uh, children ask me questions about the Bible, which I love. You'd be amazed at the depth of theological acumen some of these kids have. Um, Especially when I get the one about how many wives did Solomon have and why? And I say, go ask your mom and dad they'll take care of that one. But sometimes they'll say, the Bible is big, how do I know how to obey it? And I like to tell children, there's only one command in the Bible for you. Obey your parents. That's all you have to do. And so by delaying baptism, it avoids confusion. That's their one duty, is to obey their parents. So how do you strike a balance? Is there a way to allow the child who's a true believer in Christ to come to the waters of baptism? Here's where we're landing as a church and we've been following this for some time now. It's not a perfect policy, but these are the guidelines, there's six variables that we consider. The first one is parental witness. That parents or those taking charge of children give witness to the fruit of salvation that they've seen in the life of this child particularly in the areas of obedience and self-control and desires for spiritual things. There's not that attitude of pushback anymore. There's not a rebellious spirit. There's a desire to obey, not sinless perfection, but desire. And there's a clear shift that a parent can say, we've definitely seen this over time. A second variable we would say is church witness. Parents identify others in the church who have witnessed the fruit of salvation in the life of the child and, This might be the the student ministries pastor. It might be other saved youth. It might be families that spend a lot of time with the child. It's a third variable we consider, and that is the articulation of the gospel. The articulation of the gospel is that knowledge piece that the child should be able to express at least the basics of the gospel without coaching from their parents, by the way. They're not expressing the basics of the gospel when the parents are feeding them words. And so we reserve the right to speak to a child without parents in the room. Tell me the gospel. There's a fourth guideline we use and that is articulation of personal testimony. That is the maturity piece. The articulation of the personal testimony. The child should be able to share what they believe has changed in their hearts and in their minds as a result of salvation. They might not have a clear before and after story. Some of you who get saved at the age of 40, your before story is pretty colorful. Um, Children who get saved when they're little, they don't have that big of a before story, but they can say, I used to hate obeying my parents. Now I know that it pleases God to obey my parents. So they can give at least that much. And the child should have an unhesitant willingness to publicly proclaim his faith at baptism. If there's a hope or a desire to avoid public profession, then generally what we do is say, you're not ready and we'll wait until you are. And so the testimony of the child, as with all of our baptism candidates, is written and it's approved by the pastor or the designated representative that we use. There's a fifth consideration, a fifth variable, church membership ability. Church membership ability. We've already said baptism is clearly connected with church membership from Acts 2, uh, 41 and 42. Any child being baptized should be fully aware that they're committing to church membership. Yes, under the authority of their parents, our, our little nickname, junior membership but it means that his parents are in agreement with this, that the child will be expected to go through Grace Connect class. Some of our favorite Grace Connect classes are the ones with young teenagers in them. Those are fun. That they serve in the church. That they give as they're able to. That they are accountable to the elders of the church as the elders come alongside the parents. And then the last variable is an age requirement. Now this is where we get, it gets a little bit tricky here. We just have to kind of make a decision Based on the practices of like-minded churches, we generally recommend a minimum age of 12. A child who's 12 and saved, yet doesn't demonstrate all these qualifications, ought to delay baptism. Some 12-year-olds are different than others. In, In rare instances, a child younger than 12 may be considered, but again, they should meet all of those other criteria pretty well. And that's just more than parents desire. When I see a child that's a little bit hesitant and parents pushing toward the baptistry say, no, no, this needs to be his own desire. Now, this isn't proof that 12 is a minimum age, but I would point to the age of 12 as the age the Holy Spirit showed that Jesus was fully capable in his humanity of explaining his relationship with his heavenly father. You remember that when he explained to his parents, should I not be in my father's house? He knew his relationship to his father. So we're on fairly safe ground there. So we just wanted to establish that we have people coming to the church who may ask that question and hopefully this will help answer that. I want to finish our time on one more special topic that is interesting. It won't apply to us immediately, but it does tell us to be careful and clear with scripture and that is the topic of baptism for the dead because it is mentioned in the Bible. So turn with me to 1 Corinthians 15 and we'll finish up on this tonight. 1 Corinthians 15 contains the greatest treatise, the greatest essay, as it were, in our confidence in the resurrection of the dead in Christ. We have this wonderful, long, long section giving us great, great confidence that you will be raised from the dead. The section is making the argument that if there's no resurrection from the dead, then even Christ hasn't been raised and our, our faith is a total sham. We're wasting our time. For example, look at verses 13 and 14 of 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Verse 13. But if there's no resurrection of the dead, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is vain. Your faith also is vain. One of the many proofs that Paul gives that the resurrection of the dead is completely believable is found in verse 29. Verse 29, one of his proofs. Otherwise, what will those do who are baptized for the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why then are they baptized for them? And boy, that just messes with everything we know, doesn't it? What is this? What, what, you know, we, we have never set up our baptistry and said, Uh, so-and-so here is going to be baptized on behalf of this person who went home to be with the Lord six months ago. We've never done that. So what is this about? This verse has been called one of the most difficult single verses in all the New Testament to interpret. There are somewhere in the vicinity of 35 to 50 fairly legitimate potential interpretations. So, number one. No, I won't go through all of them. scared you, didn't I? To make this as easy as we can, let me do three things. I'm going to tell you what it can't mean. I'm going to tell you all the variables that make precision difficult. And third, I'm going to give you two possibilities of what it might mean. And both of those serve the purpose of proving that resurrection is legitimate. So whichever side you land on doesn't make any difference. First, what what does it not mean? What it does not mean is a legitimate practice of vicarious baptism. A legitimate practice of vicarious baptism, of baptizing a living person on behalf of a dead person, instead of a dead person. This is a Mormon practice. They do this today. Never anywhere else in Scripture is this practice even hinted at and is definitely not commanded. This entails the belief that even if someone did not have faith in Christ when they died then another person can be baptized for them in order to save them. That just blows the gospel out of the water, doesn't it? That means that A, water baptism saves, and B, personal faith is not necessary for salvation. So we wouldn't even come anywhere near close to holding to that. That belief is totally unacceptable on multiple levels. And I want to be specific. This is talking about vicarious baptism for a a dead person who didn't make a profession of faith. I'm going to come back to this in a bit. Second thing I want to do, there are some variables that make precision difficult in this verse. And when you just have two or three of them, it, that's what gives you these 35 to 50 potential interpretations. The first variable is the meaning of baptized. <clears throat> Remember, the word baptized can have water implications and non-water implications. We said 1 Corinthians 12, 13, we're baptized into one body through the Spirit of God. Nothing in the context in this verse here to point to certainty of water context or not. Nothing tells us that. Otherwise, what will those do who are baptized for the dead? doesn't tell us whether it's speaking of water. That's the first variable. There's a second variable, and that's this one word. Otherwise, what will those do who are baptized for the dead? This is the Greek term huper, And this word can be translated over a dozen different ways with different nuances of meaning. It can mean for, it can mean about, it can mean beyond, above, instead of, because of, in reference to, for the sake of. and So context has to drive how you translate that. That's a second variable. Those two variables alone begin to give you uh, many, many potential interpretations. And there's a third variable. What were the Corinthian believers actually doing? We don't know. So that variable becomes very difficult. Were they baptizing vicariously? We don't know that for certain, so that becomes an issue for us. Adding just those three variables makes the range of possible interpretations mathematically large. Now the last thing I want to do is give you two of what I think are the best options. But again, either one of these will accomplish Paul's point of trying to give positive confidence and positive evidence for the future resurrection of believers. Option number one. And I said we don't do this, but we don't know what the Corinthian believers were doing. Option number one, vicarious baptism for dead believers, not unbelievers. That potentially they were the the church at Corinth was practicing this vicarious baptism for dead believers. That perhaps the Corinthian believers were, were baptizing living believers on behalf of the dead. It's very unlikely they were baptizing on behalf of unbelievers since the Corinthians did believe and they did understand the gospel. But if they were practicing vicarious baptism, it would be much more likely for deceased believers who had died prior to being baptized. And maybe they had a misguided belief that baptism is... It is what must complete your Christian life. We don't know what they might have believed on that. It might have even been a reference to the immediate context in chapter 11 where Paul told them that people in their midst were dropping dead because of their disobedience to the Lord. And so maybe when someone drops dead, maybe they were saying, you know, let's just do a vicarious baptism. Let's just cover all of our bases just to be, just to be safe. How would this help prove Paul's case for the resurrection? Well, it goes something like this. that he's, He would be saying, even if, the, even if you're doing the practice of, of baptizing for the dead, whether it's right or whether it's wrong, it proves that we all believe that the dead will be raised. It proves that. I think the best evidence, though, is that this is not what Paul is talking about because this practice would be out of step with the rest of the New Testament and it would either be given more mention and teaching in the New Testament if it's legitimate or it would be soundly condemned. So I, I wouldn't go down the vicarious baptism route. Option number two, I think is the best option. And that is that baptism is not referring to water baptism at all here. But the, the chapter 12, verse 13 sense of being baptized, immersed into the body of Christ through the Holy Spirit and the, two, the, the term who pair here ought to be translated because of or in reference to. Otherwise, what will those do who are baptized because of the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why then are they baptized? Because of them. You put those two variables together, what is Paul talking about? If those two variables are in place, the idea is that Paul is indicating. That people are coming to faith in Christ based on the continued memory, based on the continued testimony of believers who went before them. Now the person saying, I have come to faith because of the testimony of this brother who's already died, that would make no sense if that person didn't believe that the brother who died was simply annihilated and wouldn't be raised from the dead. And so again... If you take that view, it proves Paul's point that that resurrection is true. Just as an example, in the life of Paul himself, could you think of anybody that Paul saw die a glorious Christian death before Paul's salvation? How about Stephen? He saw and witnessed Stephen, the heavens opened and the Lord Jesus Christ standing at the right hand of the Father. And Stephen saying, Father, forgive them same words that Jesus said on the cross. I guarantee you Paul remembered that. I like this option a lot better for two reasons. The first reason, it doesn't seem to represent some sort of odd practice that Paul accidentally forgets to condemn. And the second reason, he speaks of it as something normal. That we could find anecdotal examples in history of a dead believer being a primary influence in the salvation of someone. John MacArthur tells the story of a young man in their church years ago diagnosed with a terminal illness. And he faced that illness with grace and with trust in the sovereignty of God and publicly proclaiming his yearning to be with Christ, his excitement to go to heaven. MacArthur says that at least one that they know of for certain and maybe many others came to faith in Christ Long after that young man died, because they remembered how he faced death, and they believed that resurrection must be real if anybody can face death like that. What a person does at their own death is a powerful testimony, and it goes beyond the grave. It goes beyond that moment of death, and the fact that Christians routinely face their own deaths with joy and with anticipation and delight is a powerful witness of Christ and apparently is a, is a fairly common phenomenon. I have literally counseled with an older believer who was given a diagnosis of cancer and then he came to me. He said, I, I need to talk to you. And I said, this "Is about the diagnosis of cancer. He said, no, it turned out to be false. And I got my hopes so raised up for heaven and I was putting my affairs in order. I just need prayer. I, I was so ready to go home. How about the faithful grandmother whose grandchild decades after her death remembers her hope of resurrection and eventually comes to faith in Christ? So what's the connection then to water baptism? It's simply that a new believer's baptism testimony could certainly include the influences of those deceased believers who are so confident in their faith that Christ in Christ that it left this unmistakable testimony that the resurrection is real. And it's coming to all who trust in Christ. I want to finish with one question and one plea. One question, and it's one I'm asked on occasion, and I don't know when I'll get to address it again, so I'll address it now. The question I get, at Grace Bible Church, are you Baptists? Are you Baptists? I'm always scared to answer that question because what they're asking is, are you like my preconceived notion of what I think Baptists are like? So I just say, maybe. Maybe. And let's talk about it. Eventually, to put a label on everything you believe gets ridiculous because you'd have to have pages of labels. But it is, a, it is a question. Are we Baptists? Well, first of all, we're Reformed in that we hold to the doctrines of grace. That salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone, as revealed in Scripture alone. So are we Reformed Baptists? Well, Reformed Baptists or particular Baptists, Calvinistic Baptists, we hold to Reformed soteriology, salvation Uh, doctrine check we hold to the regulative principle of worship that if it's not expressly commanded in scripture we don't do that as part of worship that's one of the reasons we don't baptize infants check reformed baptists hold to covenant theology uncheck we're not covenantal we would graciously disagree with our covenantal brethren about things like the covenant of the works or the covenant of the grace which is not taught in scripture directly so what are we I guess we would call ourselves Reformed Dispensational Baptists. So why don't we put that on our sign? Because there's only three people in Kern County who would know what that means and they all go to this church. So I've been thinking about this and I I feel like we should define ourselves by our name. And if we're going to do that, then we need a bigger sign. Because our name would be Grace alone, faith alone, and Christ alone, literal, historical, grammatical, hermeneutic, premillennial, pre tribulational, dispensational believers, baptism, six day creationist, not under the law of Moses, new covenant, still under Abrahamic covenant, literal restoration of Israel, but Gentiles coming to the kingdom in the church age, harmony of the Gospels, Trinitarian, reformed, regulative principle in worship, Calvinist, but don't get offended by that because we still love you, church. <laughs> so that's who we are. That's who we are. Oh, no. <laughs> We need a bigger sign. (laughs) More seriously, though, so if somebody asks, are you a Baptist? Yes, we are. What does that mean? It means we obey the Lord Jesus Christ in his word, and one of the things he said is to baptize. We just don't stick it in our church name. Most importantly, though, I do have a plea. Baptism is a double-edged sword. It is a two-edged sword in that, on the one hand, it is a glorious symbol and reminder of the regeneration the purification having died with Christ and been raised with him it is a glorious reminder but on the other side of that it can be seen as a false proof of salvation and I would urge you don't let the fact that you've been baptized keep you from examining your heart if you say am I in the faith and the first thing you think is yep I got baptized no don't think that better Have you been following Christ in a way that demonstrates a changed life? Or are you leading a double life that you don't care about? That you think is okay, that you're trying to get pulling one over on everyone? You need Christ. And I would urge you not to let your baptism make you relax and let you even think for one minute that that moment in time is the source of your security. It is not. There's no place in Scripture that says your baptism is a source of security. Christ is our source of security. The fruit of the Spirit is our source of security. Our obedience is our source of security. Our desires, our our heavenward glance, our heavenward gaze, that's our source of security. Our love for the body of Christ is our source of security. And I would say this with all the love of Christ, all the warning that I can muster My personal experience has been eight out of ten people that get into the waters of baptism in the ministry I've been a part of. Eight out of ten have gotten wet before, have been baptized before. And they come to realize that they got wet before they made a genuine, heartfelt profession of faith, before they were regenerate. And so I would say come to the cross and then come to the waters and do so in a legitimate way let's pray together thank you father for an enjoyable day of the lord we have feasted on the songs of the faith we have been fed with the word of god and we have been thrilled with the fellowship of the saints how we love to gather together and tomorrow we face another day lord in a world that hates us and hates you and yet we're called to be faithful witnesses and Even our own baptisms, Lord, are a witness to the world that we are followers of Christ and we are loyal to Him and our fidelity is to Him. We thank You, Lord, for the church. We thank You for the gift of baptism which does not save but gives us a memorable moment in which we can say we publicly proclaimed that we are in Christ. Thank You for this Lord's Day May it resonate in our hearts as we go forth to be faithful to you this week. We pray in Christ's name, amen.